I want you to close your eyes with me. Imagine that you are a marginalized or oppressed person. In the blink of an eye, everyone you hold dear, everything you know, the life you thought was yours is suddenly and violently taken away. Visualize yourself transported hundreds, if not thousands of miles from your home, thrust into an unfamiliar culture, immersed in a foreign language, surrounded by strange customs, stripped of your rights. You feel completely helpless, without agency, without representation, and without protection. You live daily under the threat and the fear of bodily harm. You awake in the night in a cold sweat, traumatically reliving the events that have brought you to this place. Every day you experience the unmistakable air of superiority from the people around you, the majority culture, and especially the ruling elite. Some of you don't have to try hard to imagine this scenario. With the deaths of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, and Breonna Taylor, many of us have engaged in a deep dive, pondering fervently, reading voraciously, and discussing endlessly uh, the legacy of racial injustice in this country. But that only leads to an indirect understanding. Consider that right now, in 2020, there are 40 million people who are trapped in a, an industry of uh, labor and sex trafficking. And then add to that 70 million people, refugees displaced from their homes because of conflict and persecution. The numbers of disenfranchised and marginalized and vulnerable people in the world is simply mind-boggling. But that brief imaginative exercise wasn't meant to conjure empathy for modern people. This description uh, closely explains the experience of Daniel and other Hebrew captives. The people of Israel had been exiled from their home in Jerusalem and carried off to Babylon, and no doubt they experienced fear, confusion, powerlessness, and in heaping doses. Good morning. My name is Greg Nelson. I'm one of the elders here at Jubilee Church, and I want to welcome you. I'm so glad that you have joined us this morning as we seek to, to know God, to find family, to discover our purpose, and to make a difference. You know, we are starting back up again in this series on the book of Daniel called Daniel, Behind Enemy Lines. And today I'm going to pick up where we left off. As a brief recap, before we dive into chapter two, let's consider what we've already discussed. In the early verses of chapter one, we were introduced to these four Hebrew youths, Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. These young men were from the noble class and they had been brought into Babylonian exile uh, for a process of re-education. From riches to rags and then back again, uh, we considered the ways in which their re-education was meant to supplant God's values, God's virtue, and God's uh, kingdom in their hearts and in their minds and replace it with Babylonian values, virtues in the Babylonian kingdom. Similarly, we too are pressured to take on a false identity, to uh, uh, take on these false values, false beliefs about ourselves from our families of origin, from our Western culture, and even from within, from our own uh, wayward uh, desires. Beyond that, Daniel and his friends are, are tempted to give their allegiance to the king of Babylon, to, to advance Babylonian culture and values with their lives and their new positions. But instead, they find ways to resist 
the kingdom of Babylon and stay true to God, maintaining his values and virtue in their lives. And in fact, rather than rebelling or withdrawing into themselves, they become savvy students of Babylon. This allows them to spend many years as cultural influencers, salt and light within the institutions of Babylon, advancing God's kingdom and God's virtue in that place, a place largely opposed to Yahweh. And that brings us to today's text, Daniel chapter two. If for any reason you thought that standing before the king was a, a, an enviable position, Daniel, Azariah, Hananiah, and Mishael, they find out quickly that their new assignments are fraught with danger. Though they have been promoted to roles of significant influence, their lives are now at the mercy of the murderous whims of a maniacal king. Talk about a toxic work culture. The first thing that strikes me about this account is that King Nebuchadnezzar demands loyalty and respect, yet he shows no regard for the lives of his advisors. You know, as a king, his subjects are, uh, they must answer at his beck and call. They must carry out his commands and they must, uh, are subject to all of his whims. But when perplexed by this dream that he cannot understand, a dream that speaks of uncertainty and change, he childishly demands the impossible from them and threatens their lives if they don't deliver. People must make much of him, but he makes nothing of them. Again, their Babylonian experience is sending a clear message to these youths that, that your religion, your culture, and your life do not matter. And in fact, it's no small thing for you to be sacrificed for the king's pleasure. The king's actions and words flatly contradict the values of God. You know, they say that power tends to corrupt and that absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar is a case study in absolute power. Now, given the times that we are living in, it is not, it's, it's actually quite obvious that exploitation and injustice from those in power is nothing new. We may feel caught off guard by its presence in our, in our cities and in our neighborhoods, but in reality, in history, it's, it's never been in dispute. This test makes the point very clearly. But how? How should we respond when we become witnesses of injustice? when we become targets of these abuses of power. I want to spend the remainder of my time considering how Daniel's response uh, to this shows forth his trust in God. How does Daniel manage to honor God in the midst of a truly life-threatening situation? Daniel does three things. First, Daniel stands. Second, Daniel gathers. And third, Daniel entrusts. First, Daniel stands. Daniel stands in the gap. Daniel doesn't hesitate to associate himself with the group who is at risk. It is interesting that the, the king decrees this um, of all the advisors, that all advisors, all Chaldeans, all magicians would be killed if these few standing before him can't answer the question. Uh, in that moment, if I was Daniel, I would have looked for my way out. You know, uh, if I had caught wind of this crazed threat from the king, uh, my strategy would have been run, hide, and deny. Self-preservation would have been the top of my list. But Daniel reveals here why he comes to be known as a man of excellent character or of an excellent spirit. Instead of running, Daniel jumps into the fray. 
He publicly intervenes to oppose this injustice and to find a solution in the midst of a chaotic and a dangerous situation. He approaches his would-be executioner to get the details of the king's edict. And then he requests a face-to-face meeting with the king, putting himself directly in the line of fire. Second, Daniel gathers. After first standing in the gap, Daniel gathers. He gathers his faith community. As soon as he understands the challenge that he is facing, he calls on his brothers in the faith. Verse 17 says, Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. What is your first reaction when you meet a situation that you cannot overcome? What was your impulse when the stay-at-home orders were issued or when you were laid off from your job because of COVID, when you found out that your kids could not return to full-time school or a loved one fell ill? What was your response when you saw the images of George Floyd and you knew that it could have been you or someone that you love begging for their life? Did you jump right in to analyze the situation and develop a solution to explain how everything works? That's my inclination. That's how I'm wired to see how, how can I quickly overcome this challenge? How can I solve it myself? But then I either run head first into my own limitations and become overwhelmed by the bigness of the problems. Or even if I succeed, I tragically become consumed with my own power, my own abilities, overestimating myself, much like King Nebuchadnezzar. Well, did you call a friend or a loved one and vent to them about the unfairness of life or the terrible luck, this wretched situation? It certainly is right for us to lean on others, to receive comfort in times of trial. But is our primary concern to to be validated in our frustration, in our anger, our fear? Sometimes I just want sympathy for the struggles that I'm facing. Well, maybe you did one better. Maybe you withdrew to your prayer closet and you sought God's help. You stole away to pray on your own. Well, that's certainly better than trying to solve the problem yourself or simply complaining to a friend. God delights to hear our prayers and his word encourages us that we should cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. But even in this strategy, there is a pitfall. Our modern evangelicalism has a very strong leaning towards individualism. And if the extent of our prayer life is me and Jesus, then this will undermine our unity and rob us of one of God's greatest gifts, a spiritual family. God didn't put us in a family so that we could walk alone. Daniel resists all of these pitfalls, but combines all of their benefits in his response. He gathers the ancient community group in his life, and he gathers for mutual encouragement, and they seek the God of heaven together. How often do we rob ourselves of the great grace of mutual encouragement in a spiritual family by trying to prove that we have what it takes or that we are equal to the task when in reality, God wants to comfort us and to fortify us when brothers and sisters in the faith help to carry our burdens 
Truly, Jesus Christ himself encourages us thus, that where two or more are gathered, that is where he will be. He will be in the midst of his gathered people, but we all too often settle for seeking him on our own. Notice in this text, it is only after the community group has gathered and prayed to seek the God of heaven together that God reveals the mystery. Third, Daniel entrusts. Here is the crux of the whole passage, the question that brings everything else into focus. Who's got the power? As I mentioned previously, Nebuchadnezzar, because of his position and his power, he develops a distorted view of himself, far too much regard, and a distorted view of others, absolutely no regard. In his pride, he declares, I got the power. He is the unassailable authority in Babylon and his, by his own calculations in the world. The paradox of God's kingdom, however, is that the, the lowly will be exalted and that the proud shall be humbled. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't realize it, but he has set himself up as an enemy of God. As Psalm 2 states very clearly, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs and he holds, the Lord holds them in derision. Daniel recognizes the truest reality of the universe, that Yahweh is Lord and there is no one like him. This is the answer to our question, who's got the power? The reason that Daniel is able to respond with prudence, level-headed and confident, courageous in the midst of a life-threatening crisis is that God's truth is in him. The truth that God is the one who has the power and Daniel has settled in his heart who is the true king. When the storms of life and the waves of culture crash against us, telling us loud and clear that our experiences, our concerns are meaningless, that our lives don't matter, that we are powerless to protect the things that we love. Our great refuge is not our own strength, not, not the cleverness of our minds. We do not trust in princes or in chariots. And if COVID has taught us anything, it's that wealth and technology and influence in this life cannot protect us from catastrophe, calamity, the devastating effects of a global pandemic. What ultimately gives Daniel the courage to stand in the gap, the faith-filled foresight to gather his community and the ability to entrust his life to God? What is it? What matters is not the strength of our faith, but the object of our faith. Not how strongly do I believe, but how strong is the one in whom I believe. I don't simply muster my faith, producing the wherewithal to weather the storm and persevere in these trials from within. That's the American way, not the Christian way. The key to our endurance in following Jesus is not simply to, to hold on more tightly to him, but to realize how tightly he is holding on to us. Let's look together at Daniel's hymn of praise. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. Daniel begins his hymn of praise, exalting the name of God. The name of God represents his character, his attributes, and his authority. Then Daniel comments on God's eternality, 
God be blessed forever and ever. Before there was a Nebuchadnezzar and a Daniel, before there was a Babylon and an Israel, before there were even kings and subjects on the earth, there was God sitting on his throne, surrounded by the angels, clothed in majesty and power. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. A king may direct his subjects, but he is still subject to the seasons. History students know the answer to this, but but why was Napoleon defeated at Waterloo? Because of excessive heavy rains. And why did the German advance into Russia ultimately stall during World War II? Not because of Stalin, but because of General Winter. God, on the other hand, holds the whole world in his hands. These would-be kings were defeated by the weather and the elements and the seasons, but God changes times and seasons. God removes kings and sets up kings. The fate of even the most powerful of men is in his hand. And though Nebuchadnezzar holds Daniel's life in his hand, God holds Nebuchadnezzar. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light is with him. Daniel now hones in on the specific benefits of entrusting himself to this God. The advisors and the magicians had prophetically spoken when they exclaimed this in verse 11. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. So true. Yet Daniel has access to the God who knows all things. The one who knows even the deep and hidden things of the king's heart. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given wisdom and might. And you have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Finally, God has delighted to share a bit of his infinite knowledge with his servant Daniel. Thus delivering Daniel from danger vulnerability, and helplessness. The secret of Daniel's level-headed response is not his expectation of fair representation before the king, not the track, civil rights track record of the Babylonian courts. It's, Daniel doesn't take comfort in his own strength or the, or the greatness of his arguments. No, Daniel knows the one who knows all the things. In fact, this is ultimately attested to in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Although he is too preoccupied to see it, God is speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, reaching out to him, testifying of God's own greatness. The content of Nebuchadnezzar's dream deals primarily with the Babylonian kingdom and what will come in the time after Nebuchadnezzar passes. The prophecy tells of successive kingdoms, the Medes under King Darius, the Greeks under Alexander the Great, the Romans under the Caesars, and then eventually a final kingdom. Each successive kingdom shatters the preceding kingdom. And in the end, a stone that is cut out, but not with human hands will come and it will topple the kingdoms of the earth. And in its place, a mountain that cannot be shaken will arise. Daniel, in giving the interpretation of the dream, promises that God will set up an everlasting kingdom that will never be destroyed. Verse 44. 
And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the clay, the silver, and the gold. We know that this part of the king's prophetic dream is supported and corroborated by many Old Testament prophecies. The same stone in Nebuchadnezzar's dream is the stone that the builders rejected, the stone that has become the chief cornerstone. All the kingdoms of the earth will be shaken so that that which cannot be shaken will remain. Embedded within this dream is a prophetic declaration of the preeminence of the true king, Jesus Christ. Even though Nebuchadnezzar wasn't able to recognize it, we have the benefit of hindsight and the Holy Spirit to reveal God's great purposes in history. So in the face of every trial, every challenge, every threat, every lie of the enemy, we can cling to this reality that our perfect king is not like the kings of this earth. The one who will be called Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace and Everlasting Father, he rules in perfect justice. The one who reigns forever and ever does not sacrifice his subjects to his every whim, but he laid down his life for the flock. And he delights to build his kingdom day by day. And it's growing in prominence. And like Daniel, you too can entrust yourself to this great king, to the stone that the builders rejected. For the scripture says that he who falls on this stone will be broken, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. If you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, a simple prayer is all it takes. And if you feel drawn to renew your commitment today, he is standing with open arms, ready to receive you. Would you pray with me? Dear God, we agree with the psalmist who says, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. We thank you that you have responded to our wayward wandering with grace and that you will accept every person who turns from their own ways like a father who would receive back a lost child, gathering them up in their arms and never letting go. Would you bring the stone that crushes kingdoms to our hearts, leveling all things in our lives that would compete with you? And in its place, God, would you plant a mountain, a kingdom that shall never pass away so that we might build our lives on the rock of Jesus Christ. Amen.